So again, as we turn there to 1 Peter, um, it was in, I think it was about six years ago, um, and this might be a little dated, it was around six years ago that a Monday night football game at a stadium called CenturyLink Field. You guys know where CenturyLink Field is, those of you NFL aficionados, and it's in Seattle. And uh, it was there in 2013. I think this might have been surpassed since, but I know in 2013 the Seahawks football fans set a Guinness World Record. Do you know what it was for? Noise. Crowd roar. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And Seahawks fans are, I don't know, so I've read, so I, I don't know this personally, but I am told that Seahawks fans are some of the most devoted fans in the NFL. In fact, they refer to themselves collectively as the 12th man. They call themselves 12s, right? And in 2015, so three, two years after setting this uh, Guinness World Record in 2015, when the Seahawks played the Green Bay Packers to see who would go to the Super Bowl, with only, listen to this, with only three minutes left in the game, with Seattle trailing by 12 points, okay, it was 19 to 7, um, Packers 19, uh, Seahawks 7. Three minutes left in the game. Some very devoted but very discouraged Seahawks fans completely unable to see a way forward. Right? Nothing good was going to happen in these last three minutes. <laughs> right? What did they decide to do? To leave. That's right. They decided it was best not to stay. And they left the stadium. And according to ESPN.com, after leaving the stadium, which, if you've ever been to a stadium like that, once you go out the doors, you turn back and there's a sign above the door. What does it say? No re-entry. Right? After leaving the stadium, again, which prohibits re-entry, the fans heard the crowd roar to life as their team executed what, <laughs> what, what one sports historian called, quote, one of the greatest comebacks in NFL history. Three minutes left, 12 points, no problem. Right? The moral of the story, when you have devoted and invested yourself that deeply, it's best to stay. <laughs> right? Well, Peter was writing to people who had devoted themselves to Jesus of Nazareth. Think about this. Jesus had died, we don't exactly, exactly know when, late 20s, early 30s A.D. Peter is probably writing in the early 60s. So this is, this is I mean, this is a tiny, this is 0.001% of the world population. Nobody knows who these people are. Okay, I mean, if they've decided to devote themselves to one who was crucified, who was executed as a criminal by the empire totally devoted themselves. They were completely on Jesus' side. And because of that devotion, because they were on Jesus' side, some had endured, had endured serious and sustained opposition. They had been slandered. We see that all throughout the book. I'll show you various verses where they had been slandered. They had been insulted. They were suffering for doing the right thing. And these devoted Christians... Overcome by suffering, overcome by opposition, being marginalized in their workplaces, being um, ridiculed for worshiping a, a, you know, someone who was crucified. Unable to see a way forward, they began to waver. 
And they thought, you know what? Nothing good. Nothing good can come from this. You ever do that in the midst of suffering, struggle? You think, what in the world? This is just pointless. And they said, you know, perhaps it's best not to stay. Not stay. Why? Why? Why continue? But to these slandered, these insulted Christians who had suffered for doing the right thing, who were tempted to give up, Peter says this. He says, stay. He says, stay. It will be better. It will be best to stay on Jesus' side. We see this in verses 14 and 15. He says this. If you should suffer, the Peter says, if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. That word blessed is sort of this Christianese term. It's actually an ancient Hebrew term that means fortunate. He says, if you should suffer for what is right, he says something crazy. He says, you are fortunate. This is actually going to work out for good. If you suffer in the midst of this, this will work. There's there's purpose in the midst of this. It's not this this incredible accident. He says, if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. That is, you are fortunate. It will be for your best. And then he says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. We'll talk about what that means. So Peter's saying, in the midst of their suffering for what is right, Peter urges them to renew their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Right? But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord, as Master. Renew your allegiance to him right in the midst of that suffering, right in the midst of that struggle. Peter says, do you want what is best? Do you want blessing? Stay on Jesus' side. Why does he say that? Well, let's let's read the text and let's find out. Now note the first word there. This is chapter chapter 3, verse 8. It says, finally. Okay? Finally, our text this morning begins at the tail end of a series of commands that Peter has given on how Christians are to live as outsiders, as foreigners, as those who don't fit in with the way the world works. They don't, they don't fit in at work. They don't fit in with their biological families. They don't, they don't fit in with, even with their circle of friends. They don't fit in. They're not all about conforming and being sheep with the rest of the world. See, these commands, they begin in, in, in chapter, back in chapter 2, verse 11, where Peter describes these, he describes the Christians as unwanted outsiders, as, as, excuse me, unwanted outsiders, as foreigners and exiles. So Peter says, as, outwa- as, as unwanted outsiders, in, ver- in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, first, be skeptical of yourself. We talked about that last week. Be skeptical of yourself. Say no to yourself. See, see Peter, he actually understands that our desires no matter how automatic they seem, no matter how innate they are, that our desires can be so deceptive. Can't they? Made sense at the time. Right? Our desires can be so deceptive. They can be not only deceptive, but destructive. Incredibly destructive. And as these outsiders, as those who were unwanted outsiders, as foreigners, who were also family members in the family of God, rather than rationalize or justify their desires, that's just who I am. They were to be skeptical of themselves. That's the first thing. Then second, he says, not only only are you to be skeptical of yourself, you're to support the city. Look at verse, back in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, live such good lives, such noble lives among the pagans. Live noble lives among the pagans. He says, as outsiders... We are to be concerned not only about personal godliness, saying no to myself, but also about the public good. 
See, we're not just a private, Christianity is not just a private piety. It's about the public good. Rather than withdraw as isolationists or, or judge as elitists, you know, we're just better. We are to actually roll our sleeves up and get into our neighborhoods, get into our communities, and support the city and to share in its fate. St. Louis is my city. Whatever struggles, whatever heartaches, whatever brokenness is there, we're going to participate. We're going to enter into that. So he says, first, as foreigners, as family members, we're to, we're to be skeptical of ourselves. Second, we're to support the city. And third, he says, we're to serve every authority. In chapter two, again, back, back in chapter 2, verses uh, 13 and following, he says, submit yourselves to every human authority. It's incredible. Rather than just always being defiant and always wanting to stick it to the man, always sitting around the, around the happy hour with your friends grumbling about how terrible the boss is, whining about corporate America, talking about, oh, look at just how corrupt it all is, our politicians, the corporate executives with their bonuses, it's all just one big disaster. Rather than just being cool and cynical, Peter actually says to serve, to serve the authorities, even those, especially those who are undeserving, especially those who are corrupt. He says, submit yourselves to every human authority. That is, as outsiders, rather than grow cynical about unjust and undeserving authorities, Peter says that at the heart of the Christian calling is the act of serving the undeserving. It's the act of serving the undeserving. That's, why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. And look at, in, in, uh, in, in uh, verse, uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 21, he speaks of how Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And he's there. This is so beautiful. Jesus, he's referring to the scene in the Gospels where Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, standing before Pilate, and he says nothing. He's silent. And his accusers are there, and he knows that they're going to win. They're going to they're win the day. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. What does that mean? Listen to this. Jesus knew that his father's anger that his father's wrath was real and utterly perfect and incredibly destructive. He knew that his father's wrath was terrifying. And so what did that free him to do? To show mercy. To show incredible mercy. Because on that evening, that night, that faithful night when Jesus was, 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 was condemned to die the death of a criminal. It would be, listen to this, it would be some 30 years later before the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem and every single one of the people who cried out, crucify him, every single one of those corrupt religious leaders would die. Most of them would die of starvation. They would die in horrific ways. Jesus knew that no one was getting away with anything. Think about that. That is terrifying. Jesus was so certain of God's future judgment that it freed him to pursue a present agenda of mercy. What does it mean to be a foreigner? What does it mean to be a family member? It means to have a father who says, no, do not give in to your desires. Be skeptical of yourself. 
Yes, go into the city. Don't just there and be cynical about the world around you. Oh, those Democrats. Oh, those Republicans. Oh, President Trump. It's so easy to do that. Go in there and support it. Love our neighborhoods. We'll talk about that a little more. He says, yes, be skeptical of self. Support the city, but serve those undeserving authorities in your lives. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. See, when they were wrong, see, when, when, when these Christians were wronged by those in power, they didn't, it wasn't an accident for them. It was an opportunity. They said, ah, now I can truly love. Now I can truly serve. It's astonishing. It's utterly unbelievable. And now this morning, this final exhortation, right? Be skeptical of self. Sir, uh, support the city. Serve every authority. And now it's this morning, he says, stay on Jesus' side. Stay on Jesus' side. As mentioned in verse 15, set apart Christ as Lord, as outsiders, when suffering for what is right, rather than giving away to revenge, Christians are to renew their allegiance to Jesus Christ and to stay on his side. So whose side is Jesus on? He's on the side of mercy. He's on the side of mercy. This is so beautiful. Let's read these words together. Chapter uh, 3, verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. He says, finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be like-minded. Be, be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Listen, listen to these imperatives. Don't let them just pass you by. They're beautiful. What would it look like if Good Shepherd was like-minded? If we were sympathetic. See, like-minded, we weren't just all going our own way. We were sympathetic. We, we listened. What if we loved as brothers? It was a devotion. Be compassionate and humble. Verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. He continues in verse 10, For whoever would love life and see good days, let them keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Let them turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died once, for, excuse me, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. 
through whom, all, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, in submission to him. Now this text this morning um, kind of falls into three different parts here. And I want to I express that idea through analogy for, uh, as of uh, parenting. Sarah and I, um, parent, for us, parenting is often about doing three things. It's about setting an agenda, right? You've got to explain, you've got to inspire. It's about setting an agenda. Second, it's about setting expectations for your kids, right? And then the third it's about setting an example. Got that? Setting an agenda, setting expectations, and setting an example. And that's not exactly what Peter does here. I mean, for example, though, when, it was when Sarah and I, let's say we take our kids to a birthday party. Um, in the car, on the way there, we will set the agenda. We'll say, okay, kids, we want the best birthday party ever for Sally. So what should we do? And they say something like, oh, you know, share, or say thank you, or let others go first. So we, we set the agenda. But secondly, we set expectations, right? Well, what might happen? So, so kids, let's, let's say that you're doing all that. You're sharing. You're saying thank you. Letting your others go first. But someone's mean to you. They, you know, they, they take something from you. What should you do? See, we're setting expectations. It's really possible that things could go south. That at a birthday party, things might get a little dicey, right? So... What do they say? They answer things like, oh, ignore it, or ask them to stop doing that nicely, or don't be mean back. Okay, so you set the agenda, you set expectations, and third, you set an example for them. So when mom was at your birthday party, how did she act? You remember that? Oh, mom, she made our cake, she was like, she did all kinds of things for us, she served us in lots of ways, okay. Right? That's exactly what Peter's doing here. He's doing something very similar in a passage. First, he sets the agenda. An agenda is an agenda of mercy. It's in verses 8 through 12. An agenda of mercy. He sets an agenda of mercy in verses 8 through 12. Then he sets expectations of opposition. He says, look, you're going to be merciful to people, and they're still going to hate you. They're still going to be mean to you. Just the agenda, mercy. Expectations, opposition. And third, the example of mercy where he points to Christ himself as that example of someone who was merciful in the face of opposition. Okay, so what is this agenda? It's an agenda of mercy. We can describe it this way, as wanting the best for everyone. Wanting the best for everyone. Look at verses 8 through 12. Peter describes in such detail, in such incredible beauty, the agenda of this mercy. Listen to this mercy. Look at verses 8 through 12. You've got it in front of you. Check it out. This is so amazing. First, mercy conspires. It conspires. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded. That is to say, mercy gets together. Mercy is not a one-man mission. Mercy conspires. It's the small group getting together to help a shut-in or a widow. That's what small groups can do. Hey, together we can help this person. Mercy conspires. Finally, all of you, be like-minded. It's a small group getting together to help a shut-in or a widow. It's a church getting together to do something about the tragic consequences of drugs in its community. We cons- so mercy conspires. But second, mercy not only conspires, it considers. 
He considers. He says, be sympathetic. See, mercy not only gets together, mercy gets the other. It gets it, understand, it gets the other. To be sympathetic is to understand. Mercy listens until it understands. It doesn't approve. It doesn't, it, doesn't just, it doesn't just say, well, it's fine, no big deal, but it understands. And this is probably, listen, gang, this is probably the single biggest op- uh, obstacle to, mer- to, to mercy. We will not be merciful to people whom we do not understand. It's one of the things, a, one of my greatest failings as a minister. When I grow impatient with people, I just immediately, when I get frustrated, I get irritated, my, it's, it's like this red flag, stop, stop, time out. You need to go and you need to listen to them. You need to walk in their shoes. Because my impatience says more about me than it does about them. I have to go and I have to listen to be sympathetic. So mercy conspires, mercy considers. Third, mercy commits. He says, love as brothers. Brothers are committed. This is familial devotion. Mercy commits. See, after mercy gets together, and after it gets the other, but it never, here's the other, here's the thing. Mercy never gets over the other. Never gets over people. It commits. So mercy conspires, it considers, it commits. Aristides was a, was a uh, Greek Christian convert of the second century. Listen to what he, how he describes Christians of the second century. When Christians see a foreigner, when they see an outsider, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as if he were their own brother. Isn't that beautiful? For Christians do not refer to others as family according to genealogical descent, but according to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? So mercy conspires together, mercy considers, mercy commits, and finally mercy cares. Peter writes, be compassionate. Be compassionate. Mercy cares. Mercy gets hurt. It gets involved. It gets invested. It it crawls underneath the rock with the other person. Isn't that beautiful? This is the agenda of mercy that Peter is calling us to to, to, to live out. Then finally, mercy comes down. Mercy comes down. Mercy confesses. Look at it. It says, be humble. Isn't that beautiful? Be humble. Mercy gets honest, and it gets its hands dirty. And he continues, that mercy never responds in kind. It never responds in kind. Verse at the very beginning of verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Mercy, listen to this. Mercy never gets even. It just doesn't get even. Rather than, rather, than, rather than responding in kind, mercy, listen to this, is called to want the best for everyone. Look at the uh, second half of verse 9. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called. Peter says that mercy blesses. To bless someone is to want the best for them. Now, now check this out. This is, so, this is so cool. Listen to this. This is not what you'd expect. Peter, Peter says this. He says, while, we, while, we're, while mercy wants the best for others, it also, perhaps surprisingly, it also wants the best for itself. That is, mercy wants the best for everyone, including itself. Look at verse 9 again. Peter says, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called. Why? So that you might inherit blessing. 
And to support this, Peter quotes Psalm 34, in which David says that if you want the best for yourself in both this world and the next, you should be on God's side or on Jesus' side. Listen to this. Whoever would love, that is, whoever would enjoy life and see good days, if you, you, you want the best for yourself, let them keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Let them turn from evil and do good. That's, that's called repentance. Turning from evil and, and doing good. Coming over to God's side. Let them seek peace. That is, let them, let them seek flourishing. Let them say, I, I want to pursue what's best. Let them seek peace and pursue it. Now I want you to think about that. Stop for a second. In your marriage or in your family relationships, in your classroom, in your work context, have you settled for cynicism? Have you settled for status quo? As parents, you just, just, you're just hopefully they just, you know, let's get them out of the house. That's sometimes that's where I just, wow, I just, I, 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 in my marriage sometimes, I just settle for a Cold War. You know, it's just truce. It's never going to change. It is what it is. Peter, he's saying, stop. What if you pursued an agenda of mercy? What if, what if you conspired? God brought others in. What if you conspired? Get your coworkers together. You conspire for mercy. You get your small group together. You conspire for mercy. You get your church. You get other people in your church together. You conspire. What if you consider, you really consider others? You consider those who are in opposition to you. You consider the challenges. You be sympathetic. What if you commit? You say, I'm just all in. I'm going to go down loving. I'm going to go down being merciful. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to go down. What if you, not only, not only do you conspire and consider and commit, but you care. You actually enter in and then you confess. You're humble. Ah, this is how I've contributed as a, as a boy, as a coworker. This is what I've often done. It's wrong. I've been part of the problem in this relationship, in this marriage, in this situation, in this work context. I've been part of the problem. See, and you never, you commit never to responding in kind, but you, you actually pursue what's best. I'm going to pursue what is best in my marriage. I'm going to pursue what will bring flourishing. So why is it that when we pursue blessing for others, we, we ourselves will be blessed? It's very simple. When we join God's side, it means that he's now on our side. Look at verse 12. Look at these promises in verse 12. They're so beautiful. So when we actually align ourselves to God, we actually are on his side. We're on the agenda of mercy. That's called righteousness. It's called being a righteous person who is one who is on God's side. Listen to this promise in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their prayer. Listen to that. If you are pursuing an agenda of mercy, the eyes of the Creator are on you. Isn't that beautiful? He's attentive to your cry. He's, he looks at you and he says, Oh, I hear you. I'm watching. You're not ignored. The affliction, the heartache, the loneliness, the pain. He sees and he knows. A father. Those of you who are parents, when your child is hurting, when they've been misunderstood, when they've been wronged, when they're in pain, 
Does, does your heart not break? When you, when you just, oh, you just, you're like you're living it with them. That is how your heavenly father is, all the more so. The psalmist says, I will rejoice in you, for you saw my affliction, and you knew the anguish of my soul. Brothers, sisters, this morning, know as we pursue an agenda of mercy, your Father knows the anguish of your soul. He does. So what does mercy look like? It conspires, it considers, it commits, it cares, it comes down, it confesses. It's never responding in kind, but it's always called to want the best for everyone. Ooh, it's, quite a, it's quite a list, right? Let me just make two observations very briefly here. It'll take too long. First, mercy is wanting the best for everyone. Everyone. Peter doesn't say, don't show mercy to such and such. Oh, if they've done this to you, don't show mercy. It's this unqualified agenda of mercy. I don't know about you, but I have, there are certain people, like there's this, there's this threshold of patience I have. I'm like, I'll be patient with you. I'll be patient with you. I'll be patient with you. Nope, done, over. Right? But the very heart of 1 Peter is this idea of serving the undeserving. That's the whole point, is they don't deserve it. Do you see that? And so often, well, we just we have these thresholds. Like, no, I'm done. And when we're done, it says more about us than it does about them. Because it shows that we've lost sight of what Jesus, what Jesus has done for us at the cross. He was the very one who was all about serving the undeserving, and that's you, and that, that's me. So mercy is wanting the best for everyone, but, but listen to this. This is really important in our day and age. Mercy isn't tolerance. Listen, tolerance, tolerance is idle. It just sits there. Well, tolerate do what you want. Live how you want to live. Tolerance is idle, but mercy is active. It's investing. It's seeking out the best. It's wrestling with that. I, so tolerance is idle. Mercy is active. Tolerance is apathetic. It's just apathetic. It doesn't really care. Eh, fine. Do what you want. Mercy is attentive. It's opinionated. It cares. I love you too much to let you live in this way. I love you too much to let this addiction, to let this struggle, to let this whatever it may be, to let whatever is dragging you down. I love you too much, and I'm going to get in the way. And I'm going to care. And I'm going I'm to raise my voice. I'm going to do it imperfectly. It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. But I'm here. See, tolerance is convenient. But mercy is costly. And it's complex. And it's committed. Right? To show mercy is a difficult thing. It's one of the things you learn quickly learn as a minister, just like you do in the medical field. You learn that actually people don't want help. You actually go to help people, and they're like, nah, no, no thanks. I was having this discussion uh, with Jessie Meyer, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago. She was talking about how to her job as a physical therapist. She's saying it's just really hard. People come to me, and they've been car wrecks. They've been in all kinds of situations. Now, I'm actually able to help them return to full functionality. Wouldn't that be great? You have a car wreck or something like that, and you're walking along this right here, and she's actually able to help people walk again normally. And guess what? So often they just, they won't do the exercises. They won't do the stretches. They just won't do it. They don't want to be helped. See, mercy 
Mercy is complex, it's costly. See, my prayer is that good shepherd would, that good shepherd, God would so break our hearts for one another, that you would break our hearts for our city, that you would break our hearts for everyone around us, for our loved ones, that perhaps we refuse a promotion at work, or perhaps we, 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 we invest in a way that the world would say, whoa, whoa, that's, that's your retirement. What are you doing with that? Or perhaps we, we invest in relationships that are just painful, that we stick it out. That God would break our hearts for one another, that we would so see the love of Christ for us and, and the mercy that he extends to us. So let me just recap. Peter sets an agenda of mercy. Right? We are to want the best for everyone. But Peter doesn't only set an agenda of mercy, he sets expectations of opposition. He sets expectations in verses 13 through 17. I won't take the time, but in verses 17 through 13, he talks to, he says, look, if you're seeking the best for others, chances are it's going to go great. Honestly, it may well go great. But in verse 13, he says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do the good? Well, the answer is, well, not usually no one. But that's not the whole story. He continues, but if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. He says, look, you're going to show mercy to people, and they're not going to like it. You're going to love people, and they are going to push back. They're going to shame you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to insult you. You name it. But he says this, if you suffer, pursuing for, if you suffer for pursuing this agenda of mercy, it's actually long-term what's best for you. But if you should suffer, verse 13, but if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just an amazing thing? Kids, let's imagine for a second. I know you're not in school, but you're going back to school here in a couple weeks. Let's imagine you're at school. You're at the playground. You're at lunch or maybe in the hallway or in the locker room or you're at your locker. And one kid, one classmate, starts making fun of another kid. And just using words that cut to the bone. And you know, you know that if you stick up for that person, that you'll be the next victim. And you say, you know, that's so, and you think, oh my goodness, that's, that's not what's best for me. But it actually is. Peter says, no, it is what's best. And how could that be true? Because listen to this. When you are suffering unjustly, when you are in situations that are very painful, and you're trying to, you're trying to be merciful, and there's opposition a number of really important questions emerge. Let me just read these briefly. First, whose opinion should I fear? When, when, there are, when there's a bully in the room, when there are people being mean to you, you have to ask the question, whose opinion should I fear? Whose opinion should have weight with me? When your family is making fun of you, when they insult you, when coworkers are looking at you, and whatever, whatever reason they're making fun of you, you've got to ask the question, am I going to let their opinion really impact me? In verse 14, Peter says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. He's saying, look, don't worry about what the world thinks. It's not, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. So the first question is, whose opinion should, should I fear? The second one is, whose orders should I follow? In verse 15, Peter says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. He's saying, doesn't matter. Don't, don't worry about the orders of everyone else. Don't worry about what they say to do. Set apart Christ as Lord. In the midst of suffering for what is right, he says, I will obey Christ. Not some eight-year-old or 18-year-old or supervisor, whomever. And finally, when in, the midst of, in the midst of suffering, in, in the midst of an agenda of mercy, we can ask the question, whose empire is forever? 
whose empire is forever. Is, let me ask you this this morning. Is Jesus really Lord? Is he really Lord? Is Jesus really at the helm of history? Is he really driving the bus? Hmm? These, these early Christians couldn't imagine a world in which Rome didn't reign. Think about that. And now think about it. How many of you, how many of you think about Rome? <laughs> how many of you think about Nero? Right? These early Christians could not imagine a world in which the calendar was referred to as in the year of our Lord, 2015. Right? 2015 A.D. Anno Domini. These three questions are really asking one question. Who owns me? And who's most worthy of my allegiance? And when you answer that question, gang, listen to this. I know it's, no, listen, I'm a little long here. When you wrestle with that question, who really deserves my allegiance? Who really deserves my heart? Who can we say, who else is there than Jesus? And when you wrestle with that question, you will know a freedom. Look, I just don't know what happens. Well, I don't need to understand my life anymore. I don't understand the suffering I'm going through. I know that Jesus is worthy of my heart. And so when we're in the midst of that suffering, what do we do? We stay on Jesus' side. The Jesus who is rejected, the Jesus who is reigning. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Isn't that beautiful? Christ also had an agenda of mercy. It was to bring you to God. And he was willing to suffer unjustly to finish that agenda. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, three times Pontius Pilate publicly states Jesus' innocence. And after being nailed to the cross, with the scribes sneering and the soldiers ridiculing, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And, and of course, one of the, one of the thieves next, next to Jesus, after hearing his fellow, his fellow uh, thief ridicule Jesus, he says these words, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our sins deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And after Jesus had breathed his last, the centurion, says Luke, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Jesus went down fulfilling his mission of mercy because he believed, he believed David's words. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Jesus banked everything. The most influential person in human history banked everything on the conviction that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be insulted. Was he right to do that? Did he get it right? Did Jesus invest rightly? Let me conclude with this. Um, as I said earlier, some of the, while some of the Seahawks fans at the stadium left early, others watched from home. And one such viewer, 
made the following comment on an ESPN article after the game. Listen to this, this is great. She writes, my husband and I were watching the Seahawks game at my mom and dad's house, and he wanted to leave after the interception with just five minutes left in the fourth. I sighed and I said, no, I'm staying until they're dead. <laughs> she, she continues, I'd lost hope and was beyond dejected. But the next half hour was one of the craziest of our lives. There was cheering and fist bumping and just absolute freakouts. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. <laughs> See, the disciples chose not to stay for Jesus' crucifixion. You know that, right, from the story? They all left. They all abandoned Jesus. But some did stay. Who was it? Ladies, who was it? The women. Some women did. They said, we're staying until he's dead. They had lost all hope. They were beyond dejected. What possible good can come from this nightmare of our Lord, our Master, our Teacher being being crucified, humiliated. Christian, what might God do if you stay? What might he do if we, if you and I together, we go down wanting the best for everyone? Listen, when suffering unjustly, stay on the side of the crucified. Stick to your agenda of mercy, wanting the best for everyone. Let's pray together.